This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. After some of the most trying times ever these past couple of years, perhaps many of us out there are finding some things difficult, because all sorts of things come to try us after all, don't they? And anything can weigh down on you heavily. Perhaps there's something preventing you from achieving any wants or goals that you have, or something's interfering with your happiness. And if so, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. It's a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling, is available worldwide so clients anywhere can use it if they wish, and if it's needed, even has financial aid available for the service. What BetterHelp does is assesses whatever issues you may be facing, and calling on its broad range of expertise available, with specialists in a vast range of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you. BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected to best suit your needs for professional counselling. It isn't self-help that's being advocated here. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating in a confidential online environment with your own selected personal counsellor, who you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, who you can message anytime you want or feel, and who you can expect thoughtful and timely responses back from. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash TCE. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes from a freezing cold, storm-battered North Wales to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I seek out those cases and tales of true crime that aren't at the forefront of the mind, stories of events that may be obscure, often long forgotten and sometimes unbelievable, from all across the UK and Ireland. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, my beloved black and white menace peaks, the true crime enthusiast cat, is right here with me as ever. And we're completed by the most important part of the true crime triangle, you guys, the wonderful lot who make doing this all worthwhile for me. It's as always fabulous that you've joined me, which I thank you very kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as the episode finds you, then it finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So firstly, you have to excuse my voice if it sounds a little bit different. I've had a cold all week and I still feel a bit croaky, but I wanted to put the episode out. So if I sound any different, that's what it's for. 
And so we're rumbling very swiftly towards the end of Series 6 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, with this episode that you're listening to now being the penultimate episode. Before I have a bit of a break, restock the library, refill the chalkboard and recharge the batteries, and return with Series 7 very, very early in the new year. Now I've already sketched out a running list for it, and I've added some right tales to that one, I promise you. Although how true to the list I'll stay, I don't know, as these things never run how you think, they really don't. As I did last year also, I'll do again a review of this series, Series 6, that will be out before the end of this month, as well as continuing with the Patreon episodes. All that will be business as usual, and this upcoming Patreon tale will deal with some more horrors over the holidays. So don't miss me too much, he says, who loves you, eh? Don't miss me too much because I will be back very soon, but if you want or need some extra enthusiast in that time, then you can catch the upcoming Patreon episode as well as some 29 other unreleased bonus tales by becoming a supporter of the show on Patreon. Quicker than realising that Omicron B is an anagram of no crimbo, and let's hope that's not the case, eh? And for a very reasonable amount, you can be hearing these tales such as Suffer the Little Children, Operation Magnesium, The Rotten Rose of Devon, or Pierpoint's Last Drop, to name just a couple of them, with a new bonus tale being released each month. You may even be awaiting a bit of show swag coming from me as well, who knows? And my thanks and shout-outs go this time around to both my returning and new Patreon supporters, Nunu, Joe Hornsby, Lisa Kendall, Vanessa Gordon, Dawn Ball, Carla Morgan, Anna McKell, Richard Hadfield, Magpie, Ben Dawson, Lisa Roberts, David Allen, Naria Senya, Gavin Cook, Matthew McClelland and Lindsay Lemon, plus Andrew Goldsmith, Jennifer McCown and Paula Christina who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much folks, it's so very kind of you to do so, I know I say this all the time, but I always mean it, it really is, and I do hope that you've all gotten a good start on hearing those tales. So, the penultimate tale of Series 6 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is a fair bit more recent one than we usually look at here, and for it, we head to somewhere we've visited closely on the show, the West Midlands of the UK. This time around finds us in the small market town of Bilston, just three miles outside Wolverhampton, for a tale that will shock, and certainly will anger you. I know that it did me. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Mistakes. So, we head for our tale to the West Midlands market town of Bilston, a former important post-industrial revolution centre of steelwork and enamelling, and notably the birthplace of the drummer from Slade, Don Powell, founding member of the Electric Light Orchestra, Steve Wallum, and former Wolverhampton and England goalkeeper, Bert the Cat Williams. The top stat that I could find for it is that it was at Bilston's Theatre Royal in 1942 that Sir Bruce Forsyth made his stage debut as Boy Bruce the Mighty Atom. Didn't he go on to do well, eh? Now there are two people that the tale I've selected revolves around, 
and I shall begin by introducing you to the most important of these, the one that should never be lost sight of throughout this whole tale, the youngest daughter of the Skidmore family from Bilston, a 37-year-old nurse named Lisa Skidmore. Back in 2016, life was pretty good for Lisa. From a close-knit family consisting of her 80-year-old mother Margaret, a retired cleaner, for whom Lisa was the primary carer, and her siblings Joyce, Jim, Alison and Irene, her father John having died some years before, Lisa had worked as a nurse since 2000 after graduating from the University of Wolverhampton with a degree, realising a lifelong dream for the caring young woman who'd spent her life, even to that point, helping others. Reaching the position of senior staff nurse, Lisa spent 12 years working on the vascular ward of Wolverhampton's New Cross Hospital, before moving from here to take up a position as a district nurse at Bilston Health Centre, less than a mile from the two-bedroom semi-detached house that Lisa lived alone in, number 11 Millcroft, quiet Bilston cul-de-sac. Aside from her busy job, which she loved and was equally loved and respected by all who knew her in her role, Lisa was happily single, spending her spare time watching TV shows like The X-Files, which, like me, she loved and was a massive fan of, and reading science and crime fiction novels. Her other love and passion was Disney, specifically collecting Disney memorabilia, which she would pick up on visits to the antique fairs and car boot sales she so loved attending, always on a constant hunt for rare items. Her mother Margaret recalled later, She was about four years old when her obsession with Disney, and Mickey Mouse in particular, started. I used to buy Disney stuff off a man at Bilston Market, and when she was older and went to Disneyland, she'd bring back these big Disney figures. Whenever we went to Birmingham or Merry Hill, she'd always end up in the Disney shop, without fail. If we were out, and Lisa saw something she liked and it was near her birthday or Christmas, I'd buy it her. Such was the extent of Lisa's Disney obsession, that on a day trip out to Thlangothlan with her mother and her sister Joyce, She'd homed in on a giant Mickey Mouse in an antique shop there, and of course, it was coming home with them. It was so large that the statue had to go into the back seat of the car, complete with a seatbelt around it, but you can't leave something that you fall in love with on sight there like that, can you? Lisa's sister Alison added, Just before it happened, we were in Tlandidno, and she saw these two figures of Mickey and Minnie, and I bought them her for Christmas. They're still upstairs. She never got them. No, she sadly never did. On the morning of Thursday, November the 24th, 2016, Lisa was still feeling uncharacteristically under the weather. The previous day, she'd telephoned her job at Bilston Health Centre to report in sick, and was that Thursday taking a second day off bed resting, having a duvet day. At about 10am, Lisa's mother Margaret, who lived nearby to Lisa, decided to pop around to see how her daughter was feeling. She was about to go shopping, and wondering if Lisa needed anything, made her way around to Millcroft and let herself into Lisa's house, which she had a key for. But when Margaret let herself into the house, she noticed immediately that something was wrong. In her own words, she described later, I could smell an overpowering smell of gas, and I called Lisa's name. Then I saw a figure moving by the kitchen, and I thought it was Lisa, 
and I called her name again. As Margaret made her way into the kitchen to investigate the smell, shouting for her daughter, she was suddenly attacked from behind and was roughly spun around to see a powerfully built black male who had been standing behind the kitchen door. Without warning, he punched her hard in the face and then, getting her into a neck hold, dragged the elderly lady into the living room and forced her into an armchair where he harked at her not to look at him when she tried to see what he was doing. He also told her not to shout Lisa, telling Margaret that she was upstairs. Margaret continued. Then he said, I'm not going to hurt you, I'm a burglar, you surprised me. He asked if I had any money and I told him no, so he punched me in the face and head three or four times again. Reeling from these savage blows, Margaret, and this is a lady of 80 years of age, remember, Margaret then felt a ligature of some sort being wrapped around her neck, which it transpired was a vacuum cleaner cord, but thankfully managed to put three fingers between her throat and the lead before her assailant tightened his grip. As she began choking, she felt more tight pulls on the cord, which was held tight for up to a minute, until she choked and lost consciousness. When she was recounting this later, Margaret, barely able to get the words out, said, I thought I was going to die. I blacked out. With Margaret seemingly lifeless on the floor then, her attacker, who it transpired had spent more than two hours in the house already that morning, then made his way back upstairs to the main bedroom, where he pulled several items of clothing out of one of the drawers and arranged them on the bed. He then put a match to them and started a fire, only leaving when it had taken hold. He then made his way back downstairs, stepping over the body of Margaret Skidmore and heading into the kitchen, where he then turned on one of the gas taps on the cooker and tried to start a fire there also, although this fire was unsuccessful. Before he left, his final act was to place into the kitchen sink some empty cans of lager, Red Bull, and spent cigarette ends that he'd collected the previous evening, picked up off the street that contained the DNA of two other people. He then calmly left through the back door and away onto a footpath which ran to the rear of the complex. Some 20 minutes later, Margaret regained consciousness after her attacker had fled and making her way over to a discarded handbag, immediately rang the police from her mobile phone. As she was doing so, by this time with smoke billowing downstairs from the upstairs blaze, a passing neighbour of Lisa's, Gavin Gilchrist, who was by chance returning to his home, spotted the smoke pouring from an ajar window. Immediately forcing open the front door, he spotted Margaret slumped in the lounge by the kitchen door and rushed over to her, only to be told by Margaret that Lisa was upstairs and for him to instead get to her. Bravely, Gavin attempted to make his way up the staircase, but was unable to, driven back by the thick smoke. By that time being joined by another neighbour who had noticed the commotion, the two men then managed to get Margaret out of the property, where only moments later, firefighters arrived on the scene. With breathing apparatus on, making their way inside and upstairs, fire crews soon located and extinguished the blaze in the main bedroom which had by that time caused extensive damage, 
but also made a tragic discovery, for lying in her bed, covered over with a duvet, was the body of Lisa Skidmore. Although firefighters searched for signs of life, there was sadly none present, and at 11.12am, Lisa Skidmore was pronounced dead. A later post-mortem revealed that Lisa's cause of death, however, wasn't due to smoke inhalation, nor burns received, because the fire hadn't touched her. Cause of death was determined to be due to strangulation, bruising to Lisa's face and throat indicating that a killer had at least partly manually strangled her with his bare hands. However, there was also a ligature mark around her throat, and bruising to her back and her neck indicated that while Lisa had been laid face down, her killer had knelt on her to exert maximum force while strangling her. She'd also been viciously sexually assaulted before being strangled. Recalling that terrible day, Lisa's sister Alison takes up the story. Joyce phoned me and said Mum had been attacked at Lisa's house. I had no idea then that Lisa had been murdered. Alison and her husband Bob quickly made their way to Lisa's home in the normally quiet cul-de-sac, only to find the street cordoned off and a plethora of emergency service vehicles filling the road. Alison continues. There were two fire engines and 13 firefighters, two ambulances, four police cars and a first response car. Mum was being attended to by paramedics. She had an oxygen mask on and said, her voice trembling, Lisa has gone. I then saw the ambulance door open and I could see Lisa's leg. There was a police officer by us and Joyce and I asked him about Lisa, but he didn't answer. It was then that I knew she'd died, but I couldn't take it in. Finding out about Lisa while getting my head around the fact that Mum had nearly died was hell. Alison and the police officer accompanied Margaret in the ambulance to New Cross Hospital, the very hospital where Lisa had spent so many happy years working. There, the nursing staff, her daughter's former colleagues, examined Margaret and found that aside from the effects of smoke inhalation, she also had a fractured jaw and a fractured cheekbone, and severe bruising to her neck and her face, where the killer had struck her several blows. Alison recalled, They asked me if I would help Mum get into a gown and bag up all her clothes, as the police needed them for forensic evidence. More police arrived, and one was stationed outside the room. Two female officers were asking us questions, and the forensic officer was taking photos of Mum. It was surreal. Although medical staff wanted Margaret to stay in hospital for the night for observation, in a state of shock, she insisted on returning home with her children. Alison continues, None of us could comprehend what had happened. We were all empty. The look on Mum's face haunts me to this day. The light had gone out of her eyes, and her life. She didn't go to bed for two nights, and didn't leave the house, apart from when we had to go to the police station, for six weeks. You can't even imagine, can you? The resulting murder inquiry, launched immediately, was spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Mark Payne of West Midlands Police, who told the media the following day, 
We believe that the offender assaulted Miss Skidmore before setting fire to the bedroom. He was then disturbed by Lisa's mother and assaulted her before making his escape from the house. Her mother has been treated for injuries, but she's been able to provide us with an account of what happened and she's been looked after in hospital. What we really need is the help of local people. Somebody may have seen the offender either before he went into the house or afterwards in and around the Mount Pleasant area. This is a very complex inquiry. We have a team of detectives working around the clock to trace the person responsible. So I would urge anyone who saw someone acting suspiciously around the property at around 10.30 on Thursday morning to contact us urgently on 101. Police had by that time established that from CCTV from a neighbouring overlooking property, at about 7.50am on the morning of the murder, it's still being heavily shrouded in darkness at that time due to it being late November, a shadowy dark figure was spotted carrying a set of stepladders and approaching number 11 Millcroft from the direction of the wooded area to the rear of the cul-de-sac parking area the area that separates this from the rear of Bilston Library. The figure was then seen heading around the back of the property, placing the ladders against the wall of number 11, and then using them to climb up to the first floor bedroom window before climbing inside. A check of further footage from days previously revealed that three days before the murder, a similar figure was spotted carrying out the exact same actions in the early hours of the Monday morning, under cover of darkness, although stopping short of entering the property, instead merely peering through Lisa's bedroom window. The ladders were later determined to have been stolen from a property in neighbouring Mount Pleasant that night, specifically for that purpose, and had then been stashed behind some neighbouring maisonettes. Until three days later, when... Having now established that a woman lived alone in the house, Lisa's killer came back that Thursday, for although he was unknown to her, he'd been stalking her for some time, and he was now ready to rape and to kill. Horrifically, he had spent some two hours in the property after entering through that window, putting Lisa through who alone knows what kind of ordeal before the same CCTV camera captured her mother Margaret making her way to the house and letting herself in shortly after 10am. From the description that Margaret had offered of the assailant, police at first believed they were looking for a black male, dressed fully in black from head to toe and complete with leather gloves, who was in his 20s, about 5 foot 6 inches tall, of powerful build and with Afro-Caribbean hair. Now it transpired that Margaret had very much underestimated the age of the killer, for DNA traces of him were removed from the upstairs of the property, despite the fire and despite the deliberate planting of the cigarette butts and the empty tins of lager and Red Bull in the kitchen to throw police off the scent, Lisa's killer had not been as thorough as he had thought, and a match was soon found on the National DNA Database the match was revealed to be a 55-year-old man named Leroy Campbell. A check of Campbell's whereabouts revealed that he'd been released from prison less than four months previously and was at the time living in a hostel some 15 miles away 
in Forest Road in the Birmingham suburb of Moseley. The check also revealed that he'd served almost 17 years of an indeterminate sentence for rape and aggravated burglary, a crime during which he had climbed in through an upstairs window and attacked the single mother living alone, and that up until a month before Lisa's murder, he had been staying at an approved premises probation hostel in Bilston, less than a mile from Millcroft. Three days after her horrific death, on Sunday the 27th of November, Leroy Campbell was arrested at the Forest Road Hostel on suspicion of Lisa's murder and the attempted murder of Margaret Skidmore. And on Thursday the 1st of December, he appeared before Birmingham Magistrates Court facing charges of murder, arson with intent to endanger life, and attempted murder following his attack on Margaret. Campbell, who appeared in the dock wearing a black jumper and light-coloured jogging bottoms, spoke only to confirm his name and address, and did not enter any plea during the four-minute court hearing before being remanded in custody to await trial. Meanwhile, Lisa's shell-shocked family, friends and colleagues were left struggling to make sense of the horrific events that had taken her from them only days before. Facebook tributes to the murdered woman came thick and fast, with one friend, Andy Davis, writing, She was just the best nurse I've had, so caring, would not hurt anyone. Feel so sorry for Lisa's mum, just can't believe we've lost Lisa, a great nurse, R.I.P. A former colleague of Lisa's, Colleen Zoe Parker, added, Lisa was such a nice person. I had the pleasure to work with her as a student nurse. When I think of how many lives she saved in her career and to be taken like this, it breaks my heart. And Lisa's employers, the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust, echoed this, saying in a glowing testimony, Lisa worked at the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust for nearly 20 years and was a valued member of the nursing team. She was an excellent senior staff nurse. She received a Bachelor's of Science with Honours degree in Professional Nursing Studies in 2007 and began working in the community based in Bilston in 2013. She was a kind, caring and compassionate nurse and an absolute credit to her profession. Our thoughts are with her friends and family in this tragic time. Now I always add tributes like this into any episode because I think it's important to try and grasp a sense of how much someone is missed, the feeling of loss that loved ones and friends of someone have, and I could go on here about Lisa, such are the tributes to her, but perhaps what highlighted the high regard she was held in by almost everyone the most was demonstrated at her funeral, an event quite unlike any other witnessed in the quiet market town of Bilston. As the hundred-strong crowd left St. Leonard's Church, at the end of the service, dozens of helium balloons with pictures of Lisa's beloved Disney characters on them were released into the air, a spectacle she would have loved. Nurses and medics wearing their uniforms lined the footpath, clapping and offering comfort to Lisa's devastated family as they made their way onto the cemetery. Now funerals can of course be cathartic and comforting for loved ones, but not this one. How are you even supposed to begin trying to get over something so horrific? And sadly, 
the more people who are there, the more of a sense of occasion that it is, that loss is surely going to feel greater, isn't it? And it's exactly how Lisa's family felt. Sometime later, Margaret was to say in a moving interview, Joyce and I were the last people to see her alive the day before she was murdered. We said, we'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. We couldn't have imagined in our worst nightmares what would happen next. I didn't know that morning what pain the day would bring. That pain never goes away. I lost a daughter, my friend and carer. The Skidmore family were to feel Lisa's loss so much more cruelly in the wake of later revelations too. On the 12th of May 2017, then 56-year-old Leroy Campbell appeared at Birmingham Crown Court via a video link from Woodhill Prison in Milton Keynes, where he pleaded guilty to murder, rape, attempted murder, arson with intent to endanger life, and intent to cause explosion. Rachel Brand QC defending said that Campbell was a paranoid schizophrenic who suffered from mental illness and had been, I quote, struggling with what he feels is a compulsion to commit offences of this kind. Before sentencing, the court then heard details of the events of that day the previous November, with Detective Constable Simon Lee telling the jury. At 7.50am on November the 24th, Campbell can be seen on CCTV leaning ladders up against the rear of Miss Skidmore's house. He climbs the ladders towards her bedroom window. His actions once he enters the address are unknown. Margaret Skidmore is later caught on CCTV walking towards Lisa's address. She arrived and he assaulted her. He put the cord of a vacuum cleaner around her neck and pulled it tight. She lost consciousness. One of the rings in the kitchen was on and there was a charred match next to the ring. It was a deliberate attempt to cause an explosion. Miss Skidmore awoke and called emergency services. Neighbours entered the house and helped Mrs Skidmore into a chair. They thought Lisa Skidmore was upstairs, but were prevented from going up by the thickness of the smoke. The emergency services found Lisa Skidmore in a fetal position under her bed in her room. She was not bound in any way and was declared deceased at 11.12am. Blood from Lisa Skidmore was found on a towel in the bathroom. Campbell previously made victims wash themselves in an attempt to remove incriminating evidence. Michael Burroughs QC, prosecuting, added, He was in Lisa Skidmore's house for about two hours before being disturbed by Lisa's mother. During that time, he raped and murdered her. The court heard how Campbell had, after attacking her mother from behind, punching her several times in the face, had told Mrs Skidmore, who was shouting out for Lisa, that her daughter was tied up upstairs. In fact, she was almost certainly dead, said Mr Burroughs. The court heard also that Campbell had been captured on CCTV in Bilston several times in the days leading up to the murder, and of course, had been spotted three days before it peering through the windows on number 11. Late on the night before the murder, he was caught on CCTV withdrawing an amount of cash 
from the Tesco Superstore cash point on Birmingham's Hurst Street before making his way to the bus station on Corporation Street. Here, he deactivated his mobile phone and it was not reactivated until later the following day before catching the last bus to Wolverhampton and walking the three miles to Bilston. Here, he waited around for several hours smoking cannabis until at 7.50am he fetched the ladders he'd stolen on a visit to Bilston some days previously and then silently entered the first floor window of number 11. Following his horrendous actions once inside here, the court then heard that he had also left empty cans of lager and Red Bull in the kitchen sink, collected from a street in Birmingham the previous evening, and with the DNA of two other people on them, people who were in no way involved in the crime, in order to try and divert suspicion from him. In passing sentence, presiding judge Mark Wall QC told Campbell, You made repeated trips to Bilston. I'm sure what you were doing, at least in part, was searching for another victim. Your victim was completely unknown to you. Lisa Skidmore was a nurse who was well-liked and respected by those who knew her and who were treated by her. Miss Skidmore had to suffer the pain and terror of being raped by someone in her own home before she died in a sustained incident lasting over two hours. Your actions on that day have had a most dramatic effect on a number of people. There was a significant degree of planning that went into the commission of these grotesque offences. Despite your medical condition, you were capable of planning the most serious criminal offences and carrying those plans through with ruthless efficiency. You have done so again and again, and your behaviour is becoming more abhorrent and sophisticated with time. I cannot hold back from passing a whole life sentence. Campbell said nothing upon hearing this, and today remains part of the determined few who will never again see the light of day outside prison conditions, sentenced to die behind bars. Following the verdict, Detective Chief Superintendent Mark Payne added, This horrendous crime has had a devastating impact on the many people who knew Lisa, her family, friends and work colleagues, and those who lived near her. Campbell has refused to give an account of what happened that morning, and they may never know, so I hope they can get some comfort from the fact that Campbell will never be set free again. But what Lisa's family could take no comfort whatsoever from was learning at the sentencing hearing of Campbell's horrific previous offences, how he had convictions for rape, for aggravated burglary, for choking a woman with intent to rape, for indecent assault when another woman was targeted, and how he had previously been handed a life sentence for public protection, which they only learned of an hour before his guilty plea. So why then was Campbell out on the streets? We shall get to that bit shortly, because it's now time to meet the second person that this tale revolves around. Leroy Campbell was born in Birmingham in April 1961 a child of Jamaican immigrants who had migrated to the UK to find work. His upbringing began well. In his own words, he was well cared for and wanted for nothing, having a good relationship with his brother and his parents. But at the beginning of the 1970s, when a relative was invited to live at the Campbell family home with them, 
Campbell's life changed. He described later how this relative began only shortly after he had moved in, sexually abusing him, a campaign of abuse that lasted for several years. As well as this sexual abuse, the relative treated Campbell cruelly also, often hiding his toys or possessions, and even on occasion doing things like putting insects or feces in his food. As a result, for there's no record of this abuse ever being officially reported to the relevant authority, the only way Campbell dealt with this at the time was to retreat into himself, often for days on end. However, despite a home life such as this, he sufficiently managed to obtain CSE grades at school, and even an art A-level, with him showing some considerable talent for drawing. By age 16, Campbell had begun using recreational drugs, which he claimed helped block out the anger and shame he felt over the abuse he'd suffered during his childhood, and which only a few years later led on to him dealing cannabis and crack cocaine around the Birmingham nightclub scene, whilst working mainly as a labourer on building sites. It was also during this time that Campbell embarked upon the only serious intimate relationship of his life, a relationship punctuated by periods of separation, and which was ultimately a union that produced two children, a son and a daughter. But the relationship ended abruptly in 1983, when he was convicted of burglary and attempted rape. He'd entered a nursing complex home in Birmingham, and had attempted to rape and strangle one of the nurses living there, for which he received a term of seven years imprisonment, being released from this sentence in the late 1980s. Although whilst incarcerated through this period, Campbell had taken vocational courses and obtained qualifications to help him be a productive citizen upon release, by 1991 he was offending again. And this time, the crime was much more horrific. Living at Radnor Road in the West Midlands town of Handsworth at the time, in the early hours of one evening in July 1991, Campbell had broken into the first floor flat of a 25-year-old woman who lived a couple of streets away from him with her five-year-old son. He'd scaled the fire escape at the rear of the property and upon silently entering through a window had found a t-shirt which he'd wound around his head disguising his features. He then silently moved into the kitchen and selected a pair of yellow marigold gloves which he'd placed on before stalking his way through the flat to the main bedroom where he found both mother and child asleep in the same bed. The woman awoke to find a crudely masked figure with his hands firmly around her throat who then warned her menacingly to be quiet. In her terror, the woman complied before she then had a nightdress pulled over her head and was then raped as her son slept next to her. Wicked beyond belief, eh? Following the rape, Campbell dragged the woman out of bed and with his arm roughly around her throat, dragged her to the bathroom where she was then forced to wash herself to remove traces of Campbell's DNA from her body. She was then taken into her son's bedroom where in a 30-minute ordeal, she was raped twice more before Campbell fled back down the fire escape and away and the terrified woman contacted police. Campbell was arrested later the same day after the woman gave police a description of her attacker and was linked to the scene by footprints found on the fire escape, 
having the matching training shoes on when he was arrested. In January 1992, he appeared at Birmingham Crown Court where he admitted rape, as well as charges of possession of cannabis with intent to supply, which he asked to be taken into consideration. Presiding Mr Justice Roach told Campbell when sentencing, It must have been a terrifying experience for her. You raped her three times. You are, as the medical reports show, a danger to women folk everywhere. The judge furthered that he'd considered issuing Campbell a long sentence for the crimes, but taking into account Campbell's admissions to police, his guilty plea, and his account of the sexual abuse he'd suffered as a child. On Friday, January 31st, 1992, Campbell was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. He served six years of this sentence, and in June 1998 was released early on good behaviour, although was placed on the sex offenders register for life. At the beginning of 1999, a Wolverhampton family went on holiday, leaving their French au pair, who was studying English over here at the time, in the house alone. She had on one evening been watching television in the sitting room and had fallen asleep on the sofa with the television still on. At the same time, Leroy Campbell was burgling houses in the vicinity, having already done two in the early hours, and then peering through the window of the house in question, spotted the girl asleep on the sofa. After quietly entering the property, Campbell selected a kitchen knife from the block on the unit and then stalked past the sleeping woman to head upstairs, where, after finding her bedroom, he then hung her duvet over the bedroom window to create a blackout curtain. He then put on her dressing gown and placed a pair of tights over his head to mask his appearance, before making his way back downstairs. Pausing in the hallway, he then placed a heavy radiator against the front door. The family home was undergoing renovations at the time and these had been removed, planning to use this to prevent the young woman from escaping, and then went and sat on the sofa beside her. Now, I can't, and I don't want to really, imagine the pure terror that this young woman must have felt to be awoken by a stranger, an intruder, his features obscured by tights, on the sofa shaking her awake. Dragging the woman upstairs with his arm around her throat, Campbell tried unsuccessfully to rape her, her only being prevented from being raped by his premature ejaculation before he could penetrate her. An infuriated Campbell then forced the woman downstairs and made her take a bath to remove his semen before fleeing through the back door. Campbell was arrested for this offence a couple of weeks later after he'd returned to the UK from an unannounced trip visiting relatives in Jamaica, contravening the conditions of his sex offender licensing, and was charged with the aforementioned offences, although how police arrived at his door is unreported. In May 2000, he was sentenced to an indeterminate custodial sentence for false imprisonment, aggravated burglary, and attempted rape, with his minimum tariff to serve being set at five years. He was to spend the next 16 years incarcerated for these crimes, being denied parole on several occasions, and moving around the prison system, including serving time at Monster Mansion itself, HMP Wakefield. Whilst in prison, he completed the sex offender treatment programme, various drug rehabilitation courses, 
and underwent one-to-one counselling concerning the abuse he'd suffered as a child, which he laid the blame of his need to humiliate and degrade others in his offences at the feet of, claiming wanting someone else to feel the way he was left to feel. By 2010, he was deemed to have made sufficient progress to be prisoner recategorised to a Category D, and was moved to HMP Dovegate in Staffordshire, where he was to spend the next four years in what the prison system denotes as a therapeutic community, with less emphasis on punishment and strict routine, and more on shared decision-making between both staff and inmates. This led to a move in 2014 to an open prison, HMP North Sea Camp in Lincolnshire, where Campbell shared a house in the prison grounds with four other prisoners, a move usually made concerning prisoners who were due for parole imminently. Campbell was soon entitled to periods of release on temporary licence, and by February 2015 had completed three supervised town visits accompanied by a prison officer soon leading to him having unescorted visits. Campbell once again applied for parole the same year, and this time a thorough parole report submitted to the parole board was filled with tales of the excellent progress he'd made in an open prison environment, his successful completion of his required offence focus work, the successful periods of release on temporary licence, and crucially, his expressed desire to lead a lawful life going forward. There were a few words of caution contained within, however, which denoted that on two occasions during these temporary licences, Campbell had without permission visited family members, and on the latter had met with them inside a wine bar. These breaches of trust were highlighted, and whilst they were not necessarily an indicator of him being an increased risk of harm, it did show a willingness in Campbell to disregard laid-down rules. The other, perhaps more key point, was the comment from a psychologist who had regularly assessed Campbell during his time at HMP North Sea Camp, and who said that it was his belief that Campbell had not taken the therapeutic work seriously enough, resulting in only partial evidence that the risk factors concerning Campbell had reduced. Despite this, the balance of probability fell in his favour, and with the parole board convinced that Campbell was now safe to be released, on the 25th of July 2016, he was released on licence from HMP North Sea Camp to an approved premises probation hostel in Bilston in the West Midlands. Following his release, he was visited the following day by a probation officer who went through the conditions of his licensing carefully which I shall repeat here as follows. Conditions of Licence He shall be of good behaviour and not behave in any way which undermines the purpose of the licence period, including committing any offence. He would register as a sex offender at a local police station within 72 hours of his release. He shall keep in touch with and receive visits from the supervising officer in accordance with instructions given by the supervising officer. He shall reside permanently at an address approved by the supervising officer and obtain prior permission for any stay of one or more nights at a different address. He shall not undertake work or a particular type of work unless it's approved by the supervising officer and notify in advance of any proposal to undertake work or a particular type of work. He shall not travel outside the UK 
Channel Isles or the Isle of Man except with the prior permission of the supervising officer except for the purposes of immigration, deportation or removal. He shall confine himself to Bilston approved premises in Wolverhampton between the hours of 2000 and 0700 and 1200 and 1300 daily unless otherwise authorised by the supervising officer. This condition will be reviewed on a monthly basis and may be amended or removed if it is felt that the level of risk he presents has reduced appropriately. He shall comply with any requirements specified by the supervising officer for the purpose of ensuring that he addresses his alcohol, drug, sexual, violent, anger offending behaviour problems including, but not limited to completing the Better Lives Booster Programme and engaging with any alcohol or drug treatment provider. He shall notify the supervising officer of any developing intimate relationships with women. He shall continue to address his victim awareness by completion of the victim awareness workbook. Fair enough, pretty straightforward, yeah? And following his release, Campbell seemingly had a positive attitude towards finding work looking at various possibilities including undertaking a forklift truck driver training course and enrolling on an art and design course at a local college, expressing a particular interest in designing women's shoes. He took part in an art and design group here at the hostel, as well as a breakfast club where he was encouraged to cook some of his imaginative Caribbean dishes he so enjoyed. And whilst at the start of his licence he was subject to both a lunchtime curfew and an evening one of 8pm, these were relaxed over the next few weeks. Campbell did voice concerns that the other residents at the hostel seemed to shun him, making him wonder if the reason for this owed to the nature of his previous offences. But otherwise, his drug tests were negative, he regularly saw his probation officer and hostel key worker, and after three months here, he was deemed ready to move to a less restrictive hostel some 15 miles away in Moseley. South Birmingham, nearer to his family and a place that would reflect the progress that he'd made, where he was moved to at the beginning of October 2016. But when he attended his scheduled appointment with probation staff just two weeks later on the 17th of October, it was a tearful Campbell who arrived there. On this occasion, he'd reported to a different probation officer, Audrey Spence, as his own allocated one. Lawrence Watkins was on a period of annual leave and to whom he told he was feeling depression and explained that he'd not received any benefits from the job centre. On top of this, both of his adult children, who he'd maintained contact with throughout his incarceration and who were very supportive of him, were both abroad at the time, leaving him feeling isolated and he'd struggled to establish a new routine at the hostel, expressing the wish to return to the Bilston one. It was then that he made the disclosure that much of the resulting publicity surrounding the case chosen for this episode stems from. Campbell told Audrey Spence that his feelings of isolation, vulnerability and loneliness were causing him to notice, I quote, open windows, and that he was thinking of committing the same offences as he had previously. A source used for the episode claims that upon him stating this, he was asked for clarification. Surely you aren't thinking of committing another rape, Leroy? To which he admitted that he was. 
Audrey Spence immediately told Campbell to wait there and went upstairs to inform her manager, Roderick Jones, as to what Campbell had just disclosed and to take advice about how best to proceed. The advice given to her was for her to ask Campbell to go through the therapy he'd undertaken in prison and also to forward the number of the Samaritans onto him, which she duly did. Audrey Spence also contacted Campbell's police offender manager, Sergeant Sophie Clement, who arranged to meet with him to find out more, a visit which was made some days later. Now crucially, although both this visit and the visit from Sergeant Clement were recorded on Campbell's case notes, his disclosure that he was thinking of specifically committing another sexual offence was not. At the follow-up visit on the 21st of October, Campbell told Sergeant Clement, as he told Miss Spence, that he'd been seeing open windows, which prompted similar feelings as to when he'd previously offended. Although he was quiet and polite, and admitted again he was thinking about re-offending, experiencing high anxiety, low mood and paranoia, and although Sergeant Clement was concerned about him re-offending, his risk was, somewhat bizarrely, not regarded as imminent. However, the manager of the Bilston Hostel was contacted via email, and was prepared to accept Campbell back there. On the 24th of October, Campbell returned to the probation office for a planned appointment and seemed in a better mood than previously, presenting as much more settled. Here he stated that he'd spoken with two police officers and was now feeling better because he'd had his money through and his family were due to return home imminently. Thinking he should make a go of it there, Campbell stated that he did not feel it was necessary to return to the Bilston Hostel and the cover probation officer was convinced that all was now well. The senior probation officer supervising the community care of Campbell, Alison Moss, was also on this occasion available, and spoke to Campbell herself, with her also left satisfied that his mood had improved considerably from reports, and decided not to return him to the Bilston Hostel. He was seen again by police on the 9th of November, in which he told Detective Constable Beth Jarrett he felt a lot better and she didn't ask him about his thoughts about re-offending. She said later, He had normal eye contact and seemed really relaxed and spoke about what he wanted in the future. He also thanked all agencies for their help, which kind of surprised me a bit. Now, Alison Moss has authored a book on the case and explicitly expresses in it that at no point in Campbell's case notes was it written that at the earlier appointment with Audrey Spence he had mentioned he'd been thinking of committing another sexual offence. Therefore, because this crucial comment that a dangerous rapist had made that he was thinking of committing another rape was not recorded in his case notes, the ability to recall him to his life sentence, an option perfectly available as part of the conditions of his licence, was not executed whereas Alison Moss claims that if it had been recorded, the criteria to recall him to his life sentence would have been met, and he would have been. Instead, six weeks after this disclosure, Lisa Skidmore was raped and murdered. This failure to act, lack of communication, call it what you will, was yet to come to the Skidmore family's knowledge. It was only an hour before the court case began, 
that Margaret had even learned the full extent of Campbell's past crimes. Then being told that the paranoid schizophrenic had attacked other women, including another nurse, in their homes before. These details had been kept from her, as she would have been a chief witness in the case, had Campbell not entered a guilty plea at the last moment. I can't even imagine how that must feel to hear that. Imagine someone who admits taking something so precious from you, in the most horrific of ways imaginable, and then you find out just before they do, that not only have they committed similar atrocities before, but have been previously sentenced to life imprisonment for them. You'd be crushed, devastated, angry, how on earth would you feel? But you'd demand to know why, wouldn't you? You'd think the system was shit, you'd be left with very little trust and faith indeed. So the Skidmore family now wanted, no, demanded, answers. Why was a monster like Campbell on the streets? Why was he able to target, rape and murder Lisa Skidmore? Now to a large extent the Skidmore family has had to piece together the horrific events of that morning because cruelly Leroy Campbell has refused to give an account of what happened that morning. He's largely offered a false account of the events claiming to have been at a premises the night before that doesn't exist and blaming intoxication from alcohol and cannabis for his actions. He's never once offered any remorse or consideration for Lisa's family and every statement he's made concerning the crimes has been made without emotion or sincerity. Police suspect him of being responsible for a number of rapes in the Handsworth area of Birmingham in the early 1980s, including one of a 13-year-old girl, as well as a number of reports of women who had reported a burglar in their homes who would occasionally indecently assault them whilst they were in bed. In each of these cases, the suspect described bears a strong physical resemblance to Campbell, who, it was reported, was found to have been responsible for the theft of several ladders around the same time which he would subsequently stash in a hut in Handsworth Park. I don't know what better definition of a carbon copy crime that you can have there, but Campbell has never been charged with any of these offences. Instead, Perhaps it would today be considered too costly to do so and counterproductive with him serving a whole life tariff anyway. It should never do, but of course, that's a very sad but very real way of how these things work, isn't it? So, whilst it's no justice for so many, Lisa's family do take some comfort in knowing that Campbell will never be released from prison. Her devastated sister, Alison Parker, says... My sister spent her life helping people like Campbell. She'd never met him before. We don't know why he picked on her. CCTV shows him entering Lisa's home two hours before my mum got there and we will never know exactly what happened during this time. Lisa had never even seen him before and definitely had never met him. He was a complete stranger but his previous attacks had been on nurses and so he must have picked Lisa for a reason. He is pure evil. We will never know what really happened in Lisa's final moments and that's something that we are all struggling to accept, especially my mum. Now as you can imagine, out of all of the Skidmore family, Lisa's death hit Margaret extremely hard. Although today she still lives in a home of more than 50 years, close to her family, it's no longer a safe haven. 
Following the murder, she's had counselling and been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder as well as severe depression and anxiety. Understandably, she is said to have been irreversibly changed by the horrific events of that day. Her daughter Alison, the spokesperson for the Skidmore family, says, Three months before Lisa died, we had an 80th birthday party for mum. Everyone was there. Lisa was mum's carer. She used to work four days a week, and on the other three, she would take mum out. Since Lisa died, mum won't go anywhere. We don't know what's going through her mind, but we can see she's suffering. She's still frightened, on edge all of the time, because of what Campbell did. Mum's too frightened to open a door since it happened. She can't sleep unless all the windows are closed and locked, even in the height of summer. So how much will it rage you, and it proper lit a fire under my ass. this did, hearing this, knowing what this old lady went through, and what she's been left to carry around as an aftermath of Campbell's crimes, that in January 2018, Margaret Skidmore was refused compensation from the body responsible for awarding taxpayer-funded payments to victims injured as a result of violent crime. The Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority, after being told that her injuries received in the attack were not severe enough. Yes, left with a broken jaw, a broken cheekbone, oh, and she was nearly garroted, in a letter to the family, the CICA disputed whether Mrs Skidmore's jaw had actually been broken and said that it did not consider a fractured cheekbone to be, I quote, a continuing significant disability. It adds, The widespread bruising to your head, black eyes, bloody nose, bloodshot left eye, swelling over your cheek, tenderness around your jaw, and bruising and cuts to your neck are not listed in Annex E. We are therefore unable to make an award for these injuries, as they are not qualifying injuries. Unbelievable that, isn't it, eh? Don't these bastard people want an annex shoving right up their arse? And this was a decision that came just after reports that Levi Belfield, a shy-talk we'll meet at a future date here on The Enthusiast, I'm sure, because that's a bit of a tale, had claimed to have received nearly £6,000 in damages after making a claim against the prison service for a swollen lip that he'd sustained in a fight in prison. Yes, you couldn't make it up, could you? Labour MP for Dudley North, Ian Austin, did intervene on the family's behalf, calling on the government to review its criminal injuries compensation scheme, and was quoted at the time as saying, Ordinary decent people who go out to work and pay their taxes will be absolutely furious that their money gets handed out to someone like Belfield, but a victim of crime like this doesn't get a penny. The system clearly needs to be looked at properly, and I'll be demanding ministers explain what's happened and what they're going to do to prevent it happening again. However, no compensation has been reported as forthcoming for Margaret as of me researching this episode, so yeah, whilst I very much agree with what you say, I won't really hold my breath, Ian. And nor would the Skidmore family either, really. But it was very much not about a sum of money for them, but more about acknowledgement. Margaret Skidmore said, following the decision, It's not about the money, it's the principle. 
it adds insult to injury because right from the very start, my family has had no rights in this case. And that's what they wanted more than anything, acknowledgement and accountability. So, after Campbell was imprisoned for life, this time with no chance of release, former Justice Minister Rory Stewart commissioned then Chief Inspector of Probation Services, Dame Glenis Stacey, to review the case. The resulting report did not criticise the parole board directing to release Campbell, but the probation inspectorate did flag up key failings in the way he was supervised after being freed. It was not at the highest level, as a tier 4 offender should have been, but at the lowest level. This meant, I quote, Evaluation and record-keeping procedures were not followed properly, which was unacceptable and inexplicable. Specifically singled out for criticism in the report was the instance six weeks before Lisa Skidmore's murder, where Campbell had stated that he was thinking of raping again, and had been looking at, or had noticed, open windows. In our view, that should have resulted in immediate, positive and firm action to protect the public, either an immediate move back to approved premises, or recall to prison, the review said. In the wake of this report, Rory Stewart said that he'd met with Lisa's family twice to personally apologise for failings, pledging, I will ensure that we change our training, assessments and staff management. The inquest into Lisa's death that the Skidmore family so wanted was to be heard with the jury before Her Majesty's senior coroner, Mr Zafar Sadiq, at the Black Country Coroner's Court from the 25th of February 2019. But for the coroner to gather more evidence, it was postponed until June of that year to be held over a 10-day hearing from the 10th of June. It was attended by members of Lisa's family and her elder brother James told the court, we want to find out why he was still out when certain revelations had been made to probation and police. As a family, we believe if appropriate action had been taken, then he would have been recalled. Remembering his sister, James then added, There are no amount of words that can explain the devastation that this tragedy has had on her friends and family. For 17 years, Lisa devoted her life to caring for other people tending to their need in the last hours of their lives. But in her last two hours, no one was there for her. Retired probation officer Lawrence Watkins, who was Campbell's assigned offender manager in 2014, gave evidence to the inquest and told the court of his large caseload at the time having to handle 35 cases and that all except one were very high-risk offenders. He told the inquest, Everyone was stretched in managing those caseloads in transform and rehabilitation. Concerning Campbell, Watkins said, in support of the parole board recommendation allowing him to be released from prison, Leroy Campbell had made excellent progress. He completed all the work required of him and he was clearly motivated to lead a law-abiding life in the community. This view was supported by other professionals and explained how when he was on annual leave, the case was passed on to Audrey Spence, who had met Campbell at his new hostel in Forest Road in Moseley. Watkins said, Campbell told Audrey Spence he had concerns, 
and voiced concerns that he was noticing open windows and was also thinking of committing offences of a similar nature to his previous offence. Police went to see him and assess his risk. I went to see my senior probation officer Alison Moss. Her response was that she was aware of what had gone on and his admission. She concluded that his risks had stabilised and he did not pose an immediate risk. I was devastated by the enormity of what he'd done, he said, after learning of Miss Skidmore's murder. Audrey Spence told the hearing that during their meeting, contradicting what Alison Moss claims in her book, that Campbell had never directly said his feelings were about sex offending, but he, I quote, stiffened like a fearful cat when she asked him if that was what he meant, she said. Miss Spence said she believed Campbell had been referring to sex offending rather than burglary, and that she'd notified police and her supervisor. Sarah Hemingway, representing Miss Skidmore's family, questioned Miss Spence about why she'd not tried to get Campbell recalled to prison after that conversation, to which she replied, I can't make a decision on recall on my own unless supported by information the police had. But she told the court and the jury, public protection was never off my mind, and so she had sought guidance from her supervisor, being told that said guidance was to find alternatives to recall. Campbell would be monitored by police, was put forward for further counselling, and was to meet more frequently with probation staff, she said. Indeed, Roderick Jones did tell the inquest that at that point, the idea of recall, I quote, did go through his mind, but there had been no breaches of Campbell's licence, and he'd come in and talked about how he felt. He added, I didn't think recall was appropriate in those circumstances. I advised Audrey to increase the frequency of his visits and to go and speak to the police offender manager. They determined the risk was not imminent or increasing, but there were concerns. But Sarah Hemingway said that in an email from the police to a number of people, including Miss Spence, it detailed how during a police visit, most likely the one with Sergeant Clement, Campbell had had a panic attack and broke down in tears, and since then he'd been, as quoted, fighting negative thoughts of being trapped isolation and re-offending. The email also said he was, and I again quote, giving himself two weeks and would either get through that or would re-offend. In response to this being highlighted, Miss Spence said she'd not gone through her emails properly due to a personal situation and that she, I quote, genuinely hadn't read down that far. Yeah, okay. The inquest into the murder of Lisa Skidmore concluded on the 20th of June, with a jury returning a narrative conclusion, finding multiple failures by West Midlands police, and probation services more than minimally contributed to her death. There was a failure to communicate and share information internally and externally between probation and police. They also noted that there was a heavy reliance on what the perpetrator was relating to the police and probation without basic checks being carried out. When the risk was identified, they concluded that there remained a failure to take adequate measures to manage that risk and insufficient consideration given to the option of making a reference to recall Campbell to prison 
at any point from the 17th of October 2016 onwards. The jury at the inquest gave a narrative conclusion finding there was a clear escalation of risk between the 17th of October 2016 and 24th of November 2016. Further commenting, Communication is vital in the management of offenders. However, in this instance, the agencies involved failed to share key information of the perpetrator's disclosures. In January 2020, the Skidmore family received an official public apology from West Midlands Constabulary Chief Constable Dave Thompson, who admitted that West Midlands Police had failed in their duty to protect Lisa Skidmore, saying, I've seen some very sad days in 29 years as a police officer, but the day of Lisa's murder, and particularly when the attacker was identified, was among the saddest in that 29 years. Lisa should not have been murdered or her mother attacked. Leroy Campbell should never have been in the position to repeat this crime. And the police and probation and the multi-agency public protection arrangement system failed in regard to protection of the public. So what I want to say to Lisa's family is that I'm sorry that we, as West Midlands Police, failed to protect your family. Deeply sorry. West Midlands Police and the Probation Service are here to protect the public and it's very clear that that didn't happen in this case and your family weren't protected. I apologise that we did not escalate the issues that were going on in this case to ensure decisive action was taken and we, alongside probation colleagues, will do better in future inside the multi-agency. I am deeply sorry this happened. Nothing can change what's happened but we must ensure the police and probation service work together to ensure cases like this are prevented. I'm very sorry. I would like to say as Chief Constable how sorry I am that you are sat in this room today. Asked whether the apology would bring any comfort, Lisa's sister Alison said, None at all, and when we go back and tell my mum everything, she'll probably say the same. When we found out he'd been released from a life sentence after a similar attack, we were appalled. The police gave us his name and said it was up to us if we wanted to research his background. We were devastated because we felt Lisa's death could have been prevented if people had done their jobs better. The judge who jailed him for life previously called him a danger to womenfolk and said he hadn't learned any lessons from previous sentences. How then can he have been allowed out again to roam free to do it again. At the very least, he should have been tagged or under curfew. There are no reports of anyone from West Midlands Police receiving any disciplinary action as a result of the failings that kept Leroy Campbell on the streets. Probation Officer Lawrence Watkins was demoted to a lower position within the probation service, but his supervising officer, Alison Moss, was fired. However, later receiving an out-of-court settlement for unfair dismissal. Neither Audrey Spence nor Roderick Jones received any form of disciplinary action. I thought that's somewhat wrong myself, but maybe that's just me. Now Margaret Skidmore and her family wanted to create something positive from their suffering, and to do so were determined to honour Lisa's memory by combining three things that Lisa loved most. children making people happy, and anything to do with Disney. 
the Skidmore family has now set up Lisa's Magical Memory Fund to raise money to help send children affected by murder on holidays, and a link to the fund can be found in the episode show notes. Working with Embrace, a national charity which is solely focused on helping children and young people, Lisa's fund now helps facilitate dream holidays to children who've been impacted by crimes including sexual abuse, domestic violence and even murder in an effort to help them recover from such serious crimes. And of course, where else would Lisa want children to visit? It has to be Disneyland Paris, doesn't it? Somewhere Lisa had visited four times. Her sister Alison explains, She was 18 or 19 when she first went, and she was like a big kid. Lisa would have loved to have had children, and she would definitely have taken them to Disneyland. It would have been her dream. Lisa can't go anymore, but we hope other children, who might not otherwise get the chance to have a holiday like this, can enjoy the magic that Lisa so loved. It will make Lisa really happy to know that we've been able to give these children such happy and magical memories in her name. They deserve it. So, it's a nice memory, a nice legacy for Lisa. But for the Skidmore family, the pain is still there and her death is still very raw. In an interview given years after the murder, following the apology from West Midlands Police, her mother Margaret and sister Joyce told how they still have her beloved Disney collection, unable to part with it. The giant Mickey Mouse figure she'd bought now has pride of place in her sister Alison's garden, whilst Lisa's other trinkets, a collection comprising more than 300 figurines and other related items, remain in her mother's attic. In fact, the attic is still full of Lisa's things, mainly a Disney memorabilia, but also some of her other personal effects, being too heartbreaking for the family to give them away, because it would feel like giving her away. During the interview, Alison described in barely concealed distress how hard it is for the family to even be around such things, the memories that they invoke. Picking up one of Lisa's Disney toys, Alison said, the tears now flowing freely. I said to the probation service, don't give me a monthly update or anything on Campbell. Just tell me when he's dead. It's the very least that the Skidmore family deserve, that is. I thought this was a heartbreaking crime, and I would love as always to hear your thoughts and feedback on the episode Mistakes, but I'm sure that you have to agree, it's just absolutely horrendous, and so much more should have been done to keep a predator like Campbell off the streets. It seems to be a clear case of an offender coasting through any rehabilitation courses that are available, largely saying what the powers that be want to hear, and after all of that, not in the slightest bit rehabilitated. Indeed, more of a danger than he was before. Yet someone who's deemed to be first at such a level to be recategorised, and then released on licence. And how often do we hear stories such as this, of people committing horrendous crimes after being wrongly released? Stories we've heard on the show before, Glyn Dix, Peter Bryan are just a couple of names that spring to mind. And sadly, I think we shall hear more like these. There are also very clear failings, as I've told throughout the tale, with the supervision of Campbell following his release. 
whether you can put that solely at incompetency and negligence to record such a serious admission in the case notes. Confusion or bad judgment, a monumental lack of communication in the probation service, or overwork due to large caseloads of each member of staff, well, what do you think? I found it very surprising that there wasn't more disciplinary action taken really. I would advise that if you can do, read Alison Moss's book on the case. It does make for interesting reading, and you can see what you think there. But overall through the tale, try not to remember first and foremost the dangerous sexual predator that is Leroy Campbell. You just let that monster rot. But instead, remember the Skidmore family, the fight that they've had to get any kind of answers and apology. And please remember Lisa, the nurse with a heart of gold and a love of Disney, who did nothing except expect to be safe in her own home. And why the hell shouldn't she have been? I would love as always, as I said, hearing your thoughts and feedback on mistakes which you can do so in the thread that's up on the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links, wherever you want to really, though I'm sure you know that by now folks, you really do. And with that, we are done with the penultimate episode of Series 6 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You can catch me here next time around for the series finale. So, I shall wrap up here now then, and hopefully when that comes, my voice will be back to normal, because I'm listening to myself here, and I sound proper croaky, so hopefully I'll be better next time. You can catch me here next time around for that then, I'll wrap up here now. I thank you all so very much for joining me here today, and all that remains is for me to say that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.